This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilari Mäkelä. And today's episode is about life before agriculture, before cities, before what we call civilization. And while this is the era that is most of our time really on the planet as humans, it is an era clouded in mist. And it's really difficult to know anything about it. But curiously, this is also the era that most of us end up having a pet theory about. Even my 10-year-old history student had a theory about how solitary cavemen became socialized in cities. So what, if anything, do we actually know about our distant ancestors? Were they living lives that are nasty, brutish, and short? In his best-selling book, Better Angels of Our Nature, Steven Pinker read the scientific evidence pointing in this direction, a theme that we covered in depth in episode 8. My guest in that episode, Douglas P. Fry, read the evidence very differently, and he's not alone. Jared Diamond, the famous author of Guns, Germs, and Steel, famously proclaimed that agriculture might have been the greatest mistake in the history of human race, leading to disease, overworking, and, and hierarchical violence. So a lot of disagreement there, even amongst the scientists. But interestingly, this is just the beginning. For at least these scientifically-minded writers used to agree that we do know something about our ancient ancestors. And, and crucially, that we know these things because we can use modern-day hunter-gatherers as a model of the past. They even agreed on many of the conclusions. They all agreed that humans lived most of our evolutionary history in small bands of hunter-gatherers, averaging about 25 persons. And perhaps more surprising, they all tended to agree that these bands were egalitarian. There were no bosses. There were no kings. Most things were shared. Decisions were made together. These were conclusions justified by the striking lifestyle of, of modern-day existing hunter-gatherers, such as the Kung on the Kalahari Desert. But then, a year ago, yet another bestseller about human past hit the shelves, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengro. And this was a book arguing that this is really a myth, that there is no such a thing as a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Rather, they are lifestyles, myriad forms of political experimentation which change with time. And, and, and most importantly, no hunter-gatherer group is like anyone else. None of them is a fossil of the human past. And anyone like myself who makes claims like hunter-gatherers do X or hunter-gatherers don't do Y is mistaken, for there is no single way in which hunter-gatherers live now or in the past. Now, obviously, this is a matter that has puzzled me a lot. Now, reading all these bestsellers has given me less clarity <laughs> Than, than I would have wanted and has really confused me a lot. And so I wanted to talk with that with an expert. Vivek Venkatraman is a hunter-gatherer expert who recently wrote a really clarifying piece on this topic. And so I invited him to come on the show and take us beyond the bestsellers. And what we had was a, a really wonderful discussion about what is the actual state of our thinking about hunter-gatherers amongst modern scholars? Is there such a thing as a hunter-gatherer lifestyle? And what, if anything, can modern-day hunter-gatherers tell us about our ancestors? And while we do touch briefly on topics like violence, warfare, and also health, this is a discussion that really focuses on the question of were our ancestors living as political and economic equals in their bands? For this is not only politically super interesting, but it's also one of the things that at least people used to agree about before. As always, the show note includes a full list of names and terms mentioned in the episode. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. I bring to you Vivek Venkatraman. Dr. Vivek Venkatraman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we have a big task in front of us. We are here to single-handedly uncover the truth about what human life was like before agriculture. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big question and it's an important question. So let's get to it. Let's get to it. <laughs> so uh, before we go into what we might be able to know, I think it might be useful to, to do a little bit of groundwork and start with some 
some kind of uh, myths that uh, hover around in the discussions and, and that we can probably clear away. Uh, one, of course, is the kind of classic idea of people living in caves and any human that they encounter is a, is, is a probable threat. Yeah, the popular caveman depiction is of our brutish ancestors living in caves, barely scraping by their yeah. existence. It's basically a life on the edge of barely yeah. having enough to survive. And as a result, this, this makes us violent because we are fighting over resources. And the way that Hobbes then went on to talk about this is that, well, this is where the state comes in. We need a powerful state to curb our, you know, kind of nasty underlying nature. Historical counterpoint to Hobbes is the competing view proposed by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? Who talks about the noble savage and, and his, his view is essentially the complete opposite, which is that humans are actually quite nice and friendly in their quote unquote natural state. Yeah. And that civilization is what has poisoned human life, caused war. When we look at the study of human evolution, we've kind of had this Hobbes versus Rousseau paradigm. But I think now uh, scholars are arriving at a view that's somewhere in the middle, which is that humans are actually capable of, of great violence when we look at war and genocide and so on. But we are also the most cooperative species on the planet. We have biological adaptations to be cooperative. Young children are mm -hmm. very cooperative, kind of regardless of cultural context. So we are built to cooperate, but we can also use that cooperation against others. So yeah. Richard Wrangham, Christopher Bowen, and others, um, I think, have provided compelling narratives about how we can reconcile this uh, Hobbes versus Rousseau sort of dichotomy. Yeah. But one thing that I think that has been really convincingly demonstrated is that even to the extent that people might have not lived, you know, average life expectancy, 70 year old <laughs> and, uh, and not necessarily in, a, in every single way, peaceful and great lives. It's clear from a lot of the record that health deteriorated in many parts, especially with the agricultural revolution. Uh, at least this is the kind of impression that you get from books like Sapiens, for example, that we can with pretty high confidence say that, you know, the, the teeth were healthier before agricultural yeah. revolution, that, that those who survived childhood ended up living relatively long lives. Like how confident are we about those claims? I think quite confident. I, I think this is one of the most widely misunderstood things about the evolved human life history pattern, which is that life was very short in the past. Life expectancy was, but that's because taking into account high infant mortality, which was yeah. probably very high for, for most of human evolution. But um, as you're indicating, there, there does seem to be strong evidence that when we uh, went from foraging to farming, that, that health did get worse. And this is for a lot of different reasons, right? We were getting more calories from being farmers, but we weren't getting a balanced uh, micronutrient profile, <laughs> yeah. for example. Yeah. And so all sorts of diseases uh, popped up because of that. And so I think that this part is right. I think in modern times, it goes back to Jared Diamond's article about farming being the worst mistake in the history of yeah. the human race, right? And he takes kind of a diverse perspective on this, ranging from the rise of inequality and violence all the way 
to health. I think there are some things about this idea that that are certainly true. The critiques that people have of what you'll find in Diamond's work or, or, or Sapien's, for example, is that it doesn't take a very nuanced view of hunter-gatherers. It doesn't yeah. engage yeah. much with the ethnography and the variation. There are hunter-gatherers that are very hierarchical, but they're still hunter-gatherers. Yeah. yeah. I guess this is one of the points where the probably the most important book in, in this field uh, in, a, in a long while uh, came out around a year ago, Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrow. And I think they make a big point about the, the, the naivety of just assuming that you have a certain kind of lifestyle before agriculture and then you have a different style right after it, showing that no, in, for example, Ukraine, you have these agricultural cities which seem to be very egalitarian there. No, everybody lives in a pretty similar sized house. There's no mark of, of economic inequalities. On the other hand, I mean, everybody who, who reads anthropological literature and hunter-gatherers knows about famous examples on the northwestern coast. In, the, in North America, exactly. the northwestern coast, you have these, uh, these hunter-gatherer groups that are very, I mean, they, they tick a lot of the boxes that we typically associate with civilization, um, including slavery. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, and so it just doesn't, it just doesn't cut as neat as, as, as this kind of, well, everything is fine until you plant the seed and then everything is wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this is one of the, uh, the things that they attack in the book. And I think in a way, rightfully so, is just these categories that, that we use, which um, are imperfect and don't map onto reality very well. Unfortunately, what they do in, in the book is they use that fact to sort of tear down any kind of mm. theoretical structure or yeah. conceptual apparatus that we can use to understand yeah. what the past was like, because yeah. we, don't, we don't have a VHS tape of the past, we need to use indirect evidence and theory to reconstruct the past. But if you remove all concepts and theory altogether, uh, then then you're going to be left out in the cold. And I think that's ultimately the the flaw of that book is. Um, and and it's a, it's not a flaw by accident. I think it's a flaw by design because because Graeber and Wengrow, I think their their ideological orientation is one which wants to celebrate the capacity of humans to imagine any kind of society and therefore also to say that wherever we are in the past for example in the ice age humans were able to imagine any kinds of societies and so there just was everything exactly in in a sense it, i think it is what they would just say yeah exactly that's what we were trying to do and i think we did it well <laughs> and i think that they i mean i learned a lot from the book and it's just one of the most amazing reading experiences so so i just highly highly recommend it to anyone who's really into these topics but there are things that stood out to me as i mean in a sense i guess they're attacking a straw man because nobody no serious anthropologist would have said before dawn of everything comes out that that they were well, they are hunter gatherers period and they're all alike yeah, I mean, I think I think we'll probably take a, a polite yet critical tone toward this book in this podcast. But I should start by also saying that I think it's an amazing book. It was so invigorating to read. I, I couldn't stop reading yeah. it. It's yeah. so full of uh, fantastic examples that even as a professional anthropologist, I had never heard of before. I, I learned a lot. And I think like any good book, it really makes you think and it makes you get angry and upset <laughs> what they're saying in some ways. Yeah. Um, I think, I think this is, this is part of the power of the book. Um, yeah. 
you know, we need, we need texts that are polemical to push us to the limits of yeah. uh, our thinking. And so I think, I think that's a positive. Yeah. And I guess here is a third, um, extreme option. So we have the one extreme option is this, this, this naively brutish, horrible view of the ice age cavemen. And, and, and then we used to have only one polarity, which is this, this idea that it was actually a, a certain kind of garden of Eden out of which we fell by planting the seed in the ground. And now we have a third extreme, which is that, well, it was just everything. And so we can't really say anything about it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it's probably worth taking the time for your readers to, to step back and say, like, you know, what are the main claims of this book? And I think there's really two of them. One is that social diversity in the past was very diverse, more diverse than we have given it credit for. And this largely relies uh, on the sort of egalitarian model of of human origins. It would be a statement along the lines of for 95% of human history, we lived in small nomadic egalitarian bands. And, and this really is a, a kind of intellectual heritage of the man, the hunter conference in, in the 1960s, which, which I assume we'll talk about today, but let me just quickly say what the, the second pillar is. And I think this is uh, really the, the part to critique because it's so a, a theoretical, which is Pretty much all the diversity that we see in the past is the result of choice. Hmm. Of human imagination. Of human imagination, of creativity, of, of play. And what they're doing is posing this in contrast to the role that material conditions play in human life. So the role of, of weather, of plant hmm. and meat availability, any abiotic variable um, that, that, that might influence their social organization. And yeah. in the field of behavioral ecology, of human behavioral ecology, which is what I work in, it's really the field of trying to understand how social organization is conditioned by ecological factors. And so would it be right to paraphrase the, your field's basic ideas, saying that it's not that environment determines hundred percent how a society ends up being, but it really does incline it so that it's not a surprise that, um, w the, the hunter gatherers that end up being, uh, sedentary with a lot of hierarchies are almost always by rich marine resources. It's not that if you live by a marine resource, you're guaranteed to get slaves, but there is a certain kind of inclination from living around rich marine resources towards this kind of social complexity as just one example of, of, of how the environment where people live conditions the, the kind of social organization that they're in. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, exactly. Resources determine what you are able to do, how many people you can aggregate uh, in a place. But they're, they're kind of making this false dichotomy, I think, between a materialism and an agency, right? as if these are genuine alternatives. But, but the way that anthropologists think about it is that material factors constrain the possibility of mm. choice. The same mm. way in modern society, I'm, I'm guessing you make a lot of your decisions based on how much money you have in your bank account, mm. what weather it is um, outside, you know, if the, if the subway is running or not. These are all kind of material factors that impact our lives. 
So basically what you're saying is that people that you know who work in anthropology and try to, to use anthropology as a window to, to understanding our ancestors, don't just look at a single uh, group like the, the Hatsa in Tanzania or the, the Kung in the Kalahari Desert and then say, whatever they are doing, well, that must be what we were doing all the time. What they're doing instead is that they're seeing if there's some regularities, some cultural traits that go with living on the savannah or with living without surplus, without a sedentary lifestyle. And one thing that arguably has been a finding is that when people live without surpluses, when people live without settling down in one area, almost everywhere around the world, they end up being very egalitarian, no bosses, no differences in wealth, etc., And therefore we might be able to assume if we make the assumption that this kind of nomadic immediate return lifestyle was what our ancestors were doing, that they were also egalitarian. Is that a fair characterization of a possible argument you would be making? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think if we go back to Man the Hunter and think about arguments about the nomadic style. So Man the Hunter is this conference in Chicago in 1966, which really shapes the, this whole discussion, right? I mean, it was a really game changer as, a, as an academic event, right? Yeah, we can call it really the birth of, of modern hunter-gatherer studies. Mm. This is where a bunch of anthropologists assembled together in Chicago. And they, they had been all over the globe studying hunter-gatherer populations all the way from the tropics to the Inuit in the, the circumpolar regions. And they were asking, what are the similarities and what are the differences between these populations? How can we mm. generalize and how can we explain variation based on ecological attributes. And what came away from this was called the nomadic style. And it really just outlines the material logic that, that you just mentioned, which is if you are nomadic, if you have a hunting and gathering economy where you just go out every day and bring things back and, and share them out, you tend not to accumulate much property. This kind of enforces egalitarianism. Yeah. There's not much uh, food storage because you share it out amongst, amongst everyone. And this same materialist logic, I think, can be quite powerfully applied in a lot, of, a lot of settings. So basically, if we see patterns, regularities around nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle around the world, and then we have archaeology or other sources of evidence which suggest that this was the lifestyle of, of our ancestors, um, let's say over 10,000 years ago, then we have some, some reasons to assume that probably they were also living in, in this kind of egalitarian social organizations. And, but before we go into that theoretical argument or that, that academic issue, I, I was just really want to hear from you, what, what does it mean for societies to be egalitarian? Because you've lived with the Batek people, right? Who are one of the most notoriously egalitarian also, also between, uh, between genders, not just be, uh, between male members. So. Having lived in this kind of very egalitarian hunter-gatherer group, can you flesh it out for us? Like, what is it like? Yeah, well, I think we can encapsulate this egalitarian lifestyle by the title of the main ethnography on the Batek. It's called The Headman Was a Woman, the Gender Egalitarian Batek of Malaysia. This was written by one of my PhD advisors, Kirk Endicott, and his wife, Karen Endicott, who lived with the Batek back in the 1970s for quite a long period of time recording their economy, what they were doing. So where the title comes from is that when they were living there, 
the idea in hunter-gatherer studies had been that that even in these in these groups you had male domination to some extent. Hmm. But when they were living there, they found that the person who seemed to have the most power in the group was a middle-aged woman. And this was in contrast to the government-appointed headman of this group. <laughs> this would be the person that would interact with government officials uh, when they wanted to speak with the Batek. But what's funny is that this designation by the government didn't really hold any sway with the actual people. And in fact, the person they designated as the headman was known as being maybe a little bit lazy and, and selfish. Instead, it was this woman uh, who had a husband and several kids who was the quote-unquote uh, headman. But what does it mean of, for her yeah. to be a headman? Does she give orders? She does not give orders. She can't tell people what to do, but she has this kind of informal status by virtue of her charisma and her knowledge. Hmm. She would have been a very good forager. She would know where all the fruits and, and tubers are. Um, she was probably good at resolving interpersonal disputes. And so she took the Endicots under her wing and kind of helped them along. And they, they wrote about how, how you have this informal leadership um, in this group. And in this case, it, it was a woman. In a lot of groups that are egalitarian, it, it might just be male egalitarian, hmm. whereas um, women are not of, of the same status, really. But among the Batek, uh, you actually have high levels of gender egalitarianism. What was it like for you to live there? I mean, it's quite a contrast. You drive, what, four hours from Kuala Lumpur with the world's tallest buildings, <laughs> and there you are. It is such a contrast, and it's so fascinating to see the lives of foragers and hunter-gatherers today. You can drive a few hours from this large city, Kuala Lumpur, and be in a Batek village where people have cars and stone houses and, you know, they might shop at a, a local supermarket or something. And if you drive a few more hours and then take a boat a couple hours into the jungle, you'll find people living in lean-to huts who are regularly hunting and gathering. So there's a hmm. lot of variation in the way that people engage with the, the outside world. And what do you see? What, what... What's the difference in, in terms of culture between these two parts of the Batek community? I mean, what, what it, where, where, when you are in the deeper part of the jungle where people are still hunting and gathering, what, how do they differ in their, in their norms? In their, what was it like for you to be there and, and then come back? I'd say it's quite noticeable. I think sharing norms are different. There just seems to be a lighter spirit in these, in these areas. Uh, women will walk around with their their shirts off, you know, even with, with us <laughs> as, as foreigners around. And it's just a, it's, it's a really fascinating culture to live in because it makes me question what is kind of normal about being human, right? So mm. in our society, we have a word for thank you, right? We say thank you when someone mm. gives us something. In a mm. hunter-gatherer society that is egalitarian, lots of property is just thought of to be common, right? So if you bring in meat from hunting, that kind of belongs to the group in a way. If you just took that, that monkey, let's say that you killed and hmm. took it into your own hut and kept it for your family, that would not be a very good move, socially hmm. speaking, right? Hmm. Lots of things get shared out. People don't accumulate a lot of personal property. 
And so the word thank you doesn't really have the same meaning in this in the society and they don't have it because it kind of indicates an exchange relationship, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so when I go there uh, and someone gives me something, let's say a plate of food, and I say thank you, they kind of look at me with a look of puzzlement on their face because in a way it's almost kind of insulting. Uh, right? It's just that you have the right to not give it to them if you want to. Exactly. <laughs> but you're giving it from your gracious. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It, it indicates uh, this premise that, so, that someone owns this food where, where in reality it's kind of communal. And then, you know, the other side of that coin is if, if I give them something, they'll just kind of take it and walk away, which, you know, <laughs> will kind of strike me as a little bit odd. Like, oh, why aren't they saying <laughs> thank you? But, but it, it just shows that these are just kind of products of our, of our culture. That is fascinating. That's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. And there, there we go with the thank you again. Um, fascinating. Let's then ask the question of how much can we extrapolate from this, this, these deeper corners of the bottom <laughs> um, areas, for example, and the Kung and the Hatsa, et cetera, uh, these, uh, these nomadic hunter-gatherers that we studied to the past. So Christopher Bohm is, I think, one of the people who is most influential in promoting a view that we can by using knowledge about existing hunter-gatherers. We can know about what the human life, what our ancestors were like 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago. And he writes, quote, this egalitarian approach appears to be universal for foragers who live in small bands that remain nomadic, suggesting considerable antiquity for political egalitarianism, unquote. And so there's, I think, two questions. One is the, the jump from, from here to then, and the other one is, is, is this point about uni near universalism. Uh, so let's just quickly, uh, can I hear your point, uh, your take on this? Is it right to say it's nearly universal for foragers who live in small bands uh, to be egalitarian? I mean, forgetting the point about gender egalitarianism, where you already yeah. said that there is a lot of variation. Is Bohm roughly right in saying that it, it appears to be universal? I think he is roughly right, but those words were written about 25 years ago now. And I, I do think we have a more nuanced understanding of, of societal transitions and variability in the past. So I'm not sure that the number 10,000 is strictly correct. And the reason I say that is some of the examples that were pointed out um, in the dawn of everything and, and really form the centerpiece of, of their argument. Um, Examples of monumental architecture going back quite deep in time by hunter-gatherers. So one uh, really fascinating case is Gobekli Tepe, which is a site in Turkey that is thought to be some kind of ritualistic site. This was constructed uh, for seasonal use by hunter-gatherers living in the Anatolia region of Turkey. It's about 10, 11,000 years old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's still a lot of mystery around the site. It hasn't even been fully or even partially excavated, really. But hold on there. I, I mean, I think that I was absolutely wrong. 10,000 was the wrong. I should have said 12,000. And the reason I should have said 12,000, I think, is that this one theory is that agriculture changed everything. And that seems to be wrong because you have hierarchical hunter-gatherers. There is another theory, which is that climate change changed everything. Mm -hmm that you have in technical terms, you have the place to see in which I, 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 am I right? That it's just ice age in like popularly known? Well, I mean, not entirely, but I, but I think the broader point is that it was highly, it was highly variable 
Okay. So you have the highly variable time of the ice ages that ends around 12,000 years ago. And that when you have the so-called Holocene, which starts after that, which much warmer and less variable, more stable climate, that that's what changes everything. And that is the hypothesis I'm much more uh, sympathetic to, is this idea that it is with the change of this really dramatic climate fluctuations ending and with the stable climates beginning, that you start having huge increases in population density. And when you start having these huge increases in population density, then you start having all sorts of funky stuff going around <laughs> and a huge amount of political diversity. Yeah. And there, the Gobekli Tepe is, is, is a great example of, but we have other examples of, of complex architecture built by hunter-gatherers. And based on, this, on my reading of the Gobekli Tepe, there's no reason to believe. I mean, they were agriculturalists right around the corner from where. Back to Tepe yes, exactly. That feels right. I mean, it's a fascinating example, absolutely. And I'm really happy you brought it up because it's the one thing that many listeners might have actually have heard yeah. about. But I think that it's still important to say that, well, it might be more analogous to what we already know from foragers from recent times having complex architecture, um, especially when they have more stable, more sedentary lifestyles. So do we know about the Quebec type of people? Were they really nomadic, immediate return hunter-gatherers, or were they maybe more like what we see on the Pacific Northwest in more, more recent times? Um, I don't think it's, it's really well known. Um, I think mm. they were hunter-gatherers in the sense that they were not farmers. Yeah. Clearly, there would have had to have been some kind of abundance in this region. And we know it was a fantastically abundant region with yeah. you know, yeah. waterways and yeah, and game yeah. and everything um, to sustain the, you know, the manpower needed to transport all these stones yeah. and so on. Yeah. So I think, you know, I agree with your sentiment. Gobekli Tepe is extremely interesting. Um, but if we're really talking about game changers, we want to see something like Gobekli Tepe like 100,000 years ago or even 70,000 yeah. yeah, years which ago. Which we don't see. And that's, what, and that's what we don't see. And I think that's the key piece of evidence here. Hmm. You know, just to, to step back a second, we also see uh, complex foragers in the, the south of France and in Europe during the Ice Age. When you think about the, the cave paintings and the cultures that gave rise to those, those were, those were pretty dense cultures. Uh, some people have analogized those to Pacific Northwest cultures. Oh, interesting. Perhaps a reliance on salmon. Um, and then another example that is uh, brought up is the... Siberian mammoth hunters who would construct large circular structures of mammoth bones. And these are sometimes described as monumental architecture. I think that's a, a bit of a stretch, um, honestly. But okay, why? it probably does indicate, you know, some kind of large scale cooperation going back, you know, 40,000 years or so. So when we go back to Bohm's quote, um, you know, does it stand true? And I think it stands true to the extent that you interpret his quote to be something like, well, were they all kind of like the Kung or were they largely egalitarian, but egalitarian in a way that is quite capacious, quite expansive in its view of, of, of how much variability you can have, right? Yeah. You know, I think um, when we go beyond that, you know, if we go back past 50,000 years ago or so, hmm. I don't think there's much evidence that goes against this egalitarian view. And what I want to emphasize is that this isn't just some assumption that anthropologists have yes. where it's kind of an unthinking 
assumption of like, well, we don't really know what they were doing. So let's just say that they were nomadic foragers, right? No, it's based in a kind of materialist logic that goes back to Man the Hunter, but has since been elaborated more and more of these groups that are living nomadically off of wild game. And, you know, those are empirical facts that we have from the archaeological record. And then we don't see any markers of status inequality. We don't see monumental architecture. To me, when you put all those lines of evidence together, it strongly suggests that people were largely egalitarian. It doesn't mean that there wasn't variation, yeah. but it means that you weren't having the kinds of things that led to what you see in the south of France 20,000 years ago or to Gobekli Tepe. One of the things that really struck me is to return to this point about climate changes is that yeah. I think thinking about trying to construct the kind of ecology that is required for complex hierarchical societies to evolve versus the ecology that preserves this kind of egalitarian ethos or creates, maybe better say, creates this egalitarian ethos. One of the really fascinating things I think to notice is that you need time to build these large hierarchical kind of societies that we typically associate with agriculture and that you also find in these you know, salmon fishing, <laughs> fisher hunter-gatherers, for example. And that you need time. And so your climate swings are not great for you. <laughs> and so my favorite example is from Czech uh, Republic. So there's the area of, of Moravia, where I learned from one of the papers you referenced in, in your article, that there were these kind of semi-sedentary structures that we find in archaeology. So we see that they have been starting to settle down. And, and so probably this is an area where there's a lot of resources or something, and people are starting to settle down. But then it takes, what, like 1,000 years, 2,000 years or something, and suddenly the climate is completely different and it all disappears. Right. And I think this would be one of the most kind of interesting, I think, overall arguments for why the place to see, which is this area of the Ice Ages, would not see the rise of large hierarchical societies. It's just because you, you need, even if you look at the archaeology of the Pacific Northwest, where you have these this well-known examples of complex hierarchical hunter-gatherers, it takes a long time to get from small settlements to larger settlements to then some fortresses and archaeological evidence of even warfare, etc. And so do you think that's the kind of correct line of, of, of evidence to use? Yeah, I do think that, that that's a compelling point. When you look at the Kwakutl culture in the Pacific Northwest, this is one of these uh, salmon-based societies that evolved very kind of strict hierarchies, uh, hmm. system of slavery and so on. The archaeology for that culture indicates it took about 800 years to go from more simple to more complex forms that, that we saw kind of at, at contact. Hmm. Um, so yeah, they, they do take a long time to form and it does seem like the climatic variability uh, pre-Holocene was such that forming these kinds of systems would, would have taken a long time and, and maybe, yeah. maybe been less likely. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with that sentiment. Cause I think one of the things is that in the dawn of everything, for example, they, um, Graeber and Wengro, they raised the point of like, why, for example, there's this really famous essay of the origin, the original affluent society by Marshall Salins, which uses some examples, I think the Kuhn to, to, to suggest that the the original human society had a lot of free time. They didn't have to work that hard, et cetera. 
And and then Graeber and Wingrow are like, well, but why use the Kung? Why not use, for example, some of these specific Northwestern uh, people? And I feel like it kind of doesn't recognize the fact there is a certain kind of arrow of time. We can see from the archaeology these kind of complex societies emerging. <laughs> Uh, there was this paper recently by Peter Turchin and others, 2017 paper about how you can actually codify complexity and see that complexity has been just an ever-increasing phenomenon in societies throughout Holocene. And so it does seem to me that even if we cannot say that the Kung on the Kalahari Desert are living like what people were living like 20,000 years ago, at least we have absolutely no reason to say that the Pacific Northwesters are living like that. Like the Kung, at least, it feels like a fairer bet if you want to use anything in the modern ethnography. Um, do you think that's that? Do you think that's fair, or 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 is it still very possible that you have these pockets of complex civilizations emerging on the coastlines, for example, and we just don't see it in the archaeology because those coastlines have changed so much that now they're kind of buried Atlantises of complex hunter-gatherers from the place to see. Yeah, I think your logic is exactly right. When we look at societies like the ones that arose on the Pacific Northwest coast, they're very special, and they're very special because of the resource base, the stable resource base that existed to enable them to live as hunter-gatherers, but to develop these complex societies with institutionalized hierarchy. Hmm. And that raises the question, okay, what are other kinds of places that may have given rise to this kind of complexity? And I think this is kind of the interesting question to ask about past that goes beyond 50,000 years ago. You know, we know that sea level has changed a lot. So this is one issue, mm. right? Uh, sea level has risen a lot, which means that a lot of the coastlines that were once used by modern humans to disperse around the world um, are now underwater. Okay. Mm. But, you know, we know from places like uh, Florida, the, the Calusa uh, yeah. Society, for example, it was a really interesting society that relied on... D Douglas P. Fry talked a lot about Calusa. Yeah, yeah that's right. You know, they relied on marine resources and they developed hierarchies and so on. So we can imagine that societies like that could have formed in the past for sure. The problem, though, is that there doesn't seem to be any evidence for it hmm. currently, right? There doesn't seem to be much archaeological evidence for it. And I think hmm. we would all like it to be true. I mean, it would be amazing to discover some Gobekli Tepe that is... Um, you know, buried underwater somewhere that's actually like 70,000 years old. But it's just not there. Um, would we notice it? I don't know anything about archaeology, honestly. So would we notice it or is it just the kind of, well, you can, you know, we would never see it anyway because it's underwater? Well, I mean, if it was monumental architecture in the traditional form that we think about it, of, of using, you know, things that last a long time, like, like stones and boulders and so on, then, then I think it would be, you know, detectable. Uh, by, by modern methods, you know, we can imagine that there were more kinds of subtle uh, manifestations of, of these hierarchies, you know, using material like wood that, you know, that wouldn't really preserve. But archaeologists are clever, you know, they look for patterns. Yeah. They, they have all these cool technologies to um, identify these sites. And, I, you know, I think, um, who knows, right? It could certainly emerge. It could certainly emerge in, in the future. Um, but I haven't seen any really compelling archaeological evidence of parallels to Pacific Northwest Coast societies yeah. 
that would have yeah. enabled the kind of scaling up that we see. And then therefore, uh, what it probably means is that people were living more nomadically and that therefore yeah. they were probably yeah. a little bit more egalitarian. So again, it's not yeah. a claim that humans are even naturally egalitarian. And this is like a whole other question, but, but it's just for most of human history, we're under conditions in which egalitarianism was much more likely. Yeah. So you, when you said that you haven't seen any, any archaeological analogies, would you say with the exception of perhaps Northwestern French coast, where you have these cave paintings and you said that it might be analogous? Yeah, or... yeah no, exactly. Yeah. Some people have drawn analogies between Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest and Ice Age, um, Ice Age France. Um, so those populations seem to be, you know, relatively dense. The site density is, is pretty high in those areas. There's hints of tribal affiliations. Oh, really? Okay. Ethno-linguistic groups. That's fascinating. That is really important because that's one of the points that I actually wanted to get to is that, that the formation of tribes, of tribal areas, seems to be a relatively modern phenomenon, even if it's not only a Holocene phenomenon, it seems to be a late Pleistocene and Holocene phenomenon. And this is interestingly something that I actually learned from Dawn of Everything. And this case is really beautifully put by Graeber and Wengro but in a way that they end up not drawing the conclusion that I was drawing from it. And, and one of the really key points I think here is population density. And they, they actually draw this, um, this story of a, a very cosmopolitan place to see, of how things just travel across continents really fast. You can see this in the archaeological record. I actually learned from another paper recently that you can actually, you can see even genetically that genes flow really fast. I mean, genetic adaptations, for example, in... In, like microevolution in the mm. skull structure or something flows just across Europe really fast, for example, during yeah. the Pleistocene. Yeah. And, and I love this idea of the cosmopolitan Pleistocene. But then what Graeber and Wengro do with this is very interesting because they write, this is quite a long quote, but I think this is really important. So it may not even make sense to describe, I'm paraphrasing these Ice Age Europeans, as being organized into separate bounded societies in the way we talk about the nations of Europe, or for that matter, first nations of Canada, like Mohawk, Wendat, or Montagnes, Nascapi, unquote. And then they continue that to saying that although we don't know about the, the languages, you know, maybe people were speaking different languages, but quote, we do know that from the Swiss Alps to Outer Mongolia, they were often using remarkably similar tools, playing remarkably similar musical instruments, carving similar female figurines, wearing similar ornaments and conducting similar funeral rites. What's more, there is a reason to believe that at certain points in their lives, individual men and women often traveled very long distances. Surprising, and this is important, surprisingly, current studies on hunter-gatherers suggest that this is almost exactly what one should expect. A cosmopolitan upper Paleolithic is followed by a complicated period of several thousand years, beginning around 12,000 BC, in which it first becomes possible to trace the outlines of separate cultures based on more than just stone tools. Some foragers after this time continued following large mammal herds, others settled on the coast and became fisher folk or other gathered acorns in forests, unquote. And so that was a very, that was a lot to take in, but do you see what they are doing? They're basically saying that there is this period in the Pleistocene where things are very fluid and and this is exactly what modern-day hunter-gatherers, the nomadic hunter-gatherers, I presume they're saying, look like. And then you have start having this period where people become more squeezed into different tribes, I think, with population density. 
So these people do that and, and our people, we don't do it that way. We do it different ways. And you can see it is in the pottery looking suddenly very different on this side of the river and that side of the river. But yeah. for me, this is just a really convincing way to make the argument they are not wanting to make, which is that these nomadic hunter-gatherers who live in this very fluid way are a better model of place to see than, for example, the fisher hunter-gatherers who have a very clear tribal identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love that example. I don't have enough expertise in that area to really know about the exact claim that they're making, but yeah, I do come into it with a fair bit of skepticism just based on how um, unfairly they, they treat other other areas of intellectual inquiry in this book. But I mean, I'm sort of curious. I mean, you made this comment earlier about the tribal affiliations being a relatively recent phenomenon. What what evidence are, are you kind of thinking of when I'm thinking like of that? this? I'm thinking of, of what I just read. Be, oh, the idea okay, being yeah. that yeah, being that whether you look at stone tools or pottery later on, there seems to be, according to Dave Weber and Wengroman, there seems yeah. to be this kind of squeezing in into these separate cultural areas where things right. are flowing more freely. Uh, longer, you know, in. 20,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago, and then they start to be squeezed into more cultural areas. And so the reason I wanted to read this long quote is exactly because I don't know the exact data, but I, I can't say this is a correct characterization of not. But if it is true that, quote, a, a, a cosmopolitan upper paleolithic is followed by a complicated period where it becomes possible to trace the outlines of separate cultures based on more than just right. stone tools. Then it does suggest to me, and this makes sense to me if you think about population density of, of, of when, it's, when people are roaming around, it's easier to maintain a kind of cosmopolitan traces across, you know, where you don't really have these clear boundaries. And with population density increasing, you, you're kind of squeezed into, oh, we can't actually go there because these people have settled and created a salmon farm over there. Okay, I'll ask if I can join. Okay, I can join. But at some point, they're not allowed more and more people to join because it gets too difficult. I mean, yeah. and, and as I say, I, I don't, I'm just not the right person to analyze the, the claims in terms of how true they are. But what I found striking was that if this is the correct characterization of this very cosmopolitan place to see in where people then later on get squeezed into more cultural areas, yeah. that's kind of what I thought of when I was thinking more tribal areas then yeah. I think it speaks to the post, but it, it speaks to not, the, not what they are saying earlier in the book, which is that the Paleolithic was full of social experimentation where this group does that and that group does this, but it rather would speak into them being, being these large webs of nomadic hunter-gatherers, everybody doing it re relatively similarly because, because there are no clearly demarcated cultural areas. Yeah, I think it's a, a it, yeah, it's a fascinating example and it does, cause us to question when we look at modern foragers how accurate of a representation of the past are they right you know in a lot of cases they've been kind of squeezed into uh you know smaller areas mm. but when we when we go back and we think you know pre-state societies how were all these different groups interacting were there ethno-linguistic groups uh yeah when when did they arise i mean i think given the human predisposition to kind of distinguish between in-group and out-group, I might come down on a side of there being a longer history of hmm. ethno-linguistic affiliation that would then hmm. lead to, to this kind of in-group 
outgroup psychology. But, you know, one thing we've learned in the past 20 or 30 years is how interconnected hunter-gatherer groups are. But that's what I was thinking. That's exactly the kind of stuff I was thinking, that that seems with the cosmopolitan upper paleolithic that you great. Really yeah, are well, talking for sure, about. for sure. I mean, if, if you look back to the man, the hunter model, the, 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 the kind of nomadic model, it does assume that these groups are living in these circumscribed areas and not having much interaction with outsiders. And this is one area that has been, I think, significantly revised. You know, in fact, hunter-gatherers have long-distance relationships with, hmm. with people in their hmm. band, outside of their band, right? It's not always worth fighting with people who are outside. They might have some resources you want access to. So you trade and you develop yeah. relationships and so on. And we know going back, you know, over a hundred thousand years ago, there were items being traded long distance. So exactly, yeah. hunter-gatherer social networks were probably quite complex going, going really far back. And I think this helps make sense of some of the contradictions that are inherent in kind of this small scale view of the world where if you look at evolutionary psychology where it's like yeah. we're adapted to live in these small groups and now we are kind of <clears throat> mismatched in these modern environments <clears throat> well if you look at recent hunter-gatherer studies with this view of widespread long-distance interactions then i think that becomes no longer a a puzzle because you are meeting strangers you are developing relationships with yeah. people who are not just in your kin groups yeah 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 that is fascinating because it used to be such a common idea. I mean, Richard Dawkins used this at some point. In God Delusion, he, he wrote about how sympathy probably evolved because we lived with only genetic kin. And then now it's kind of misfiring when we see strangers in, in of course, a positive way for him. Yeah. And I think this is why it's so easy to kind of create a caricature of how evolutionary minded anthropologists have, have thought about human evolution. Hmm. Right, you have statements by Harari, Diamond, Dawkins here that are they're kind of caricatures of a 1950s, 1960s version of how we saw hunter gatherers. But so much has has changed since then, right? Yeah. So we kind of look at the these updated views on how we see hunter gatherers, both from empirical fact, but also from the, the theoretical basis. You know, with that in mind, I think the doll and everything could have benefited from a more charitable treatment of these kinds of things. I think it would have really strengthened their their arguments to consider it. Okay, maybe we can try to to create some kind of a summary of what we've talked about so far. So, what do you think about the following as a, as a good working hypothesis? No one group that we study today is a window to the past, but what we do see is that whenever there are nomadic groups that live in very low population densities, so roaming around large areas, not settling down, they seem to form these relatively egalitarian structures that you experience, for example, living with the Batek people and not saying thank you, <laughs> uh, because everything is shared. Right. And when we look at archaeology, when we look at genetics, and when we just make some basic assumptions based on the fact that Pleistocene was well known as the Ice Ages <laughs> in common language, we can, we, all of these things point out to very low population densities in the places. And so we can guess that these low population density immediate return hunter-gatherers, whatever things they all share with each other, for example, egalitarianism, it probably to, to some extent took place over there. 
And therefore, what really changes, it's not just agriculture period, which is the kind of classic story found in, for example, sapiens. It is population density more generally, which is allowed by, for example, agriculture, but also just more generally, the more um, favorable climactic conditions that, that the Holocene uh, offers humans. And, and that's where we really start getting um, more social experimentation because people are you know, there's these different groups emerging because they're kind of squeezed into existence by the fact that, th that you can't just move around and as freely. And, and that's how you also end up getting hierarchies. Um, part of the reason might be that you have, you have, when you have surpluses, you're able to monopolize it as a bully. Or there's also the kind of Jared Diamond argument that when you have a very dense population, you need a centralized authority to organize things. I mean, he's not the only one who's made this point. But so that's my current thinking uh, summarized in a perhaps lengthy way. Uh, please tear it apart. I, no, I think that I think that makes sense, and I think it summarizes the the major lines of thinking of scholars on this topic. These uh, climatic conditions, first of all, population density. We know from research in cultural evolution that that innovation and um, interaction between individuals it can really get ramped up when you have higher population densities, when people are simply interacting more face-to-face, um, -face, right? And I think one of the big factors there with population density is, you know, to maintain egalitarianism, you need to have this escape option. You need to be able to walk away to go somewhere else. Oh, right? interesting. That's a really interesting point. And so once, once you pack that landscape dense with people, maybe some people that you don't like or, or maybe yeah. your enemy... Um, it's not as easy to do that. And so you have to sort of stay in place and explore other options. And this is what we refer to as intensification, right? So people couldn't move around as much and you have this process of intensification. Intensification. Uh, okay. Fascinating. So now there's a term for it. <laughs> higher population density means, means you have to, instead of going somewhere else to hunt the mammoth over the hill, you got to stay where you are and intensify your current attempts to maybe start farming or uh, manipulate the landscape in some kind of way. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Intensification. Great. And what do you think of the, this point? I mean, so the point about higher population density is not only allowing, for example, bullies to become more pertinent because you can't just walk away from them, but the more virtuous way of reading this, which is that when you have higher population densities, you need centralized authority. Because if you have 25 people, you, can, you don't need a judge. You can talk things through. If you have 2,500 people, you need a judge because, otherwise, because yeah. you don't, can't build the same kind of face-to-face -face trust. So this is a very, very common theme in the evolutionary thinking. It's something that Graeber and Wengro really don't like. Yeah, they don't like it. And they attack it on many fronts. What yeah. do you think? Where do you stand on the evidence there? Well, the underlying phenomenon is what's known as scalar stress. And it's exactly the idea that you're talking about, which is when you get more people in a place and you have to, let's say, make a decision, you know, it doesn't make sense to have a thousand people, uh, yeah. you know, vote face to face. Instead, you start to have representatives and so on, or you might have administrators and bureaucrats. Yeah. And I think Graeber and Wengro don't, don't like this idea because it, it kind of smacks of determinism to say that to scale up a society, you're necessarily trading off your 
freedom for the efficiency of operating the society. But when you look at the ethnographic record, when you look at how, how these societies work when they get bigger, it's almost a universal phenomenon that you start to see these kinds of things when you, when you scale up. And it isn't necessarily better for the people involved, but it's what allows the society to quote unquote function. They bring up uh, an archaeological example of a city in Ukraine, which apparently has archaeological signatures of high levels of egalitarianism. So there was no yeah. kind of central area like a palace or anything like that. And, and so, and so they, they, they see this as an example of people experimenting in the past by living in a large scale without having hierarchy. Yeah. And I think the burden of proof with that kind of example, especially given the vagaries of the archaeological record, I think the burden of proof fa falls on them to, to show how that, how that could be the case. Because if you look at the work of scholars like Peter Turchin, I, I think you see quite convincing explanations that societies, I don't like to use the word need, but you, you end up needing administrators and bureaucrats to, yeah, yeah. to deal with the collective problems that arise at yeah. a larger scale. And I'm not saying it's good or it's bad, it's just something that tends to happen. Yeah. Well, but it is really interesting. Does it, to the extent that it always happens or tends to happen, is it because it's needed or is it because your system becomes vulnerable to narcissists and bullies who cannot be in the same way controlled anymore? I don't have an answer. Uh, do you have an answer? <laughs> I think that's a good question. I don't, I don't think there really, there really is an answer, but if humans were constantly choosing to do whatever they want the way that Graeber and yeah. Wingro say, then, then why couldn't they, they choose to build uh, uh, societies like, like you're imagining where, um, mm. where domination doesn't come into it so prominently and mm. you form this nice, happy society. I mean, maybe this is one of the, just, just the facts of, of human nature that when we end up scaling up these societies that, um, it just kind of opens the door for, for, for more hierarchy. And, and I'm not really falling into the, the camp of saying like, you know, all of this is inevitable, but I do think we need to take an honest look at the empirical patterns and say, well, why does it form this way? Good. I, I actually, it, it's, it would be wonderful to see what those cities were like, these supposedly egalitarian cities. Um, I actually heard in an interview, David Wengro said that if he could take a time machine and go on a vacation to one place in the past, that's where he would go um, to see how things were. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. And I think we always have to be on guard for this idea that has been referred to as the tyranny of the ethnographic record, right? This is taking hmm. the, the, the ethnographic record that exists, which was largely constructed by colonial forces who yeah. were going out and seeing the world uh, in the past couple centuries. And, you know, really taking a, a, a hard look and thinking, you know, what if things were completely different in the past in ways that, that we can't even imagine? If you could take a vacation with a time machine anywhere in the past, what, where would you go? That's a really nice question. I mean, I would definitely go into to prehistory rather than, than history. But I, I would probably go back sometime fifty to sixty thousand years ago, right? So this is when when things were really changing around the world. We were in the middle of our dispersal around the globe. 
This is when toolkits got a lot more complex. People have hypothesized that there were reorientations of the brain. Uh, if you followed the self-domestication idea, this would propose that this is when we started to get a lot more friendly with each other. That actually led yeah. to a shrinking of the brain. I think this was a really interesting time to be around. I think this was when, uh, in the words of John McPhee, when human consciousness started to skip and boil in the Pleistocene. <laughs> and I just love that way of, of thinking about it. It's like we're, we're kind of coming into our, into kind of, uh, coming into our consciousness. And can you describe that world more? The, we, we, we cannot know what that would be like. That's exactly why we would want to have the time machine. But can you describe to me and the listeners a little bit what, what is the political structure that would, would people be saying thank you or would, would they be, you think that they'll be more like the Batek who don't say thank you, they're sharing the meat, they are sharing, sharing most things, there are no bosses or if they are bosses, they, they are not bossing people around, they, they, they can only lead by, by, by example. Uh, is that the world you would see? In the foraging spectrum uh, by archaeologist Bob Kelly, he says at the beginning of, of this magisterial review of hunter-gatherers, he says, if there's two things I could take away from the ethnographic record that were kind of reliably the mm -hmm. case in the past, going back to the origin of our species, he says two things. He says, we probably lived in you know, groups or bands of about the size of 25 to 30 people and that there was a gender division of, of labor. Hmm. So I would probably agree with him on these points, although I think maybe the group sizes were more flexible, maybe on a seasonal basis. But I think they probably lived in groups that were not terribly dissimilar to groups like the Kung and uh, the Batek. But again, I want to emphasize mm -hmm. there was probably a lot of variation even within that domain of egalitarian life yeah. that gave us the psychology. Um, it was a tremendously diverse place, but there were still statistical regularities that gave rise to, to what makes us human. Yeah. Do you think there was war? I think it depends how you define war, but I think that intergroup conflict has been a constant throughout human evolution. Why are none of the cave paintings ever about violence, the place to see cave paintings? That is a good question. Um, I don't think anyone has a, has a great answer to that. Um, I mean, who knows? Maybe it was some kind of... Uh, um, what was the phrase used earlier by that you mentioned by Graeber of this? Uh, of course, Pleistocene Pleistocene was the yeah the cosmopolitan Pleistocene. I mean, I mean, who is to say that that was extremely common back then? But but then again, when 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 uh, archaeologists have interpreted those cave paintings, I I think they do see signs of of ethno linguistic affiliation. You know, based on where you're hmm. okay where you're looking. Um, but but again, to go back to the question about war, I. I think that intergroup conflict has been a potent force in, in human evolution. We have a, a in-group, out-group psychology that was probably shaped by this. But I think this is often confused with the question of whether war was extremely frequent and was there hmm. high homicide rates, right? I, I teach uh, primate behavior here at my university, and I have to distinguish in my primate behavior class between predation risk and predation rate, right? Predation rate is, is the amount of, of animals that are actually being killed by predators, but risk is, well, could something happen at any given moment? Hmm. And I think that in the past, there was always a risk of 
intergroup conflict or, or you know running into other people who may not have the best intentions hmm. um but whether or not that manifested in you know a larger scale war well that probably was was less common i mean when you look at movies like dead birds which has one of the probably best depictions of what uh primitive warfare looked like this was among the danny tribe in in new guinea you have large amounts of men facing off against each other throwing a spear here and there but it was largely ritualistic it was largely a face-off hmm. not a lot of men were actually dying in this so anyway to, to just summarize that i think it was constantly a part of our lives but it doesn't mean that we were uh, kind of being slaughtered on a daily basis hmm. Hmm. i'm curious about your views on the war thing because you did a good job of carrying the conversation through with doug fry but i mean what, what, what's your takeaway on the uh on the whole war question well to be cautious i would start with just quoting from memory kim sterlney a uh, philosopher of science says that the evidence we have is patchy and might be misleading, but it does not point to a highly militarized place to see. Do you think the distinction I just drew between sort of rate and risk yeah. helps to solve that in some way? It's very useful. Because it, explain, it explains why you don't need to see, like you don't need to find evidence of a pitched battle to say war was common in the past, yeah. but it can yeah. still have been I, a potent force in the shaping of our psychology. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely a possibility, but I don't think it's a solution as such because it's still a hypothesis amongst others, which by the fact that it reduces some tension potentially <laughs> between some hypotheses doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. I'm I'm quite open. I am not as convinced as I think Doug Fry is that war is really something associated with the Holocene. But I, as, as I said earlier, I, I really place quite a lot of emphasis in my untrained thinking around population pressure. Mm. And I do think that if that is the case, and given that we really just have so little archaeological evidence of anything pointing to war, yeah, you can always say that, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but it's a bit of a cheap argument. Yeah, because we see it happening. We see around Gebekli Tepe, actually, there's a lot of evidence of, of, of violence and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, skulls being taken and, and, and things like that. And you just don't seem to see that in the place to see. And you have this, you have, I have a theoretical reason for that, which is that the population density was low enough. And if it's also true, but Graeber and Wengerow say about this kind of cosmopolitan place to see in where tools and genes flow really rapidly around around continents because of these constant kind of webs of, of as you said earlier you know hunter gatherers are not just living in a band like they are tied into these larger networks if yeah. those networks were porous enough uh i think it's very possible that violence was always uh one-on-one -on -one violence and that there were no groups that were organizing violence against other groups and that it might have been i mean i think everybody agrees that violence might have happened but uh, but that, my, my current hypothesis is that potentially no organized group on group violence, only uh, interpersonal, perhaps, you know, a few friends against another one who did something to their friend kind of stuff. But who knows? Uh, we just don't know. Who knows? No, fascinating question. But I always come back to the cave paintings. I, I do think that if it was a large part of life, it would have left a record in both uh, the skeletals, skeletons with blunt cranial trauma and in the cave paintings, and it didn't leave either. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm really happy you asked and I would love to have a better answer. (laughs) No, I I think that's good. I mean, I think most reasonable people fall kind of somewhere in the middle of, you know, it wasn't like uh, World War One out there and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, you know, champagne and roses either. Um, yeah. But I guess I'm more in the champagne and roses inclination from the, from the center, (laughs) but uh, but one thing that I do want to say is that you mentioned many of the time, you know, the in-group, in out-group psychology as one evidence that, you know, this to explain this kind of in-group, out-group psychology that we have, there must have been something going on in human evolution. And that's right. the thing where I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure I agree. And it's, I heard, hear the argument a lot, and I think it's a very plausible argument. It definitely has the burden of proof is on me <laughs> to disagree with it. Mm. But I think it's all about threat. And I think that we, that what's seen in humans as an in-group, out-group psychology is often a psychology of threat detection. Because when you have a child and you take the child to a foreign country, I mean, they, they don't have a, you know, this kind of like, ooh, who are, who are those weird people? I mean, they, they, as, lo- as long as there's no sign of threat, I think that people love meeting novelty. And right. so when you have these psychological experiments where people are suddenly very averse to someone just because they're in the out group, I think it's often because this very idea of, okay, we're going to have these two groups. You have this label, you have that label. And by the way, we're not even going to tell you what these groups actually mean. <laughs> and you're yeah. just going to be getting these points and we don't even know what, you don't even know what the points mean. It's, I think that it, it, it raises a sense of immediate threat. So yeah. that's often how I, how I look at the in-group, out-group situations that I'm less convinced than most that we have an innate inclination to prefer in-group. It's like Oscar, but I think it really emerges when there's a sense of threat. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know the, the psychological literature on this enough and how mm. people are thinking about experiments like the robber's cave experiment. I think yeah. that's what it's called, yeah. right? Um, yeah, well, that one has become, that's super problematic nowadays, actually. <laughs> yeah, that, that was sort of my, my sense, yeah. But there are some, be- there are better ones. The one that I was thinking about is the so-called minimal group paradigm, where you literally just are given a random group and random points and you allocate them and people don't allocate it so that their group gets most allocated. The difference between their group and the other group is maximum. So this is often, this is the prime example of, it's just about the groups, but I don't think it's just about the groups because I think it's about the setting where the grouping sure. is, is, is presented in a way that invites connotations of competition and, and perhaps even threat. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a reasonable argument. Well, I've, I've kept you for a very long time. I really, really thank you for the time, even if, uh, I don't know, if the Batek experience made you <laughs> dislike the word thank you. Um, that was a pleasure. Before the end, I, I do want to ask, you know, all of this, all of this reading, all of this living with, with such a different kind of social organization, how has it shaped your view of our species? Well, I got into this field because I thought that evolutionary anthropology offered such a powerful way of viewing the world. It helps the world to make uh, sense to me. And increasingly, I'm interested in what we can take from the study of ethnography to improve our own society. And I would have a lot of answers to your question, but I think the the main thing that pops into my mind is kind of current mindsets around individualism and freedom and equality. There's that famous quote from Margaret Thatcher of, there's no such thing as a society. In my view, one of the most harmful statements in 
in human history, but it's one that has had a profound influence on the course of economic history and, yeah. you know, uh, just the, the, the course of society over the past couple of decades. And what we see from the ethnographic record is that there is such a thing as a society that humans are cooperative species that thrive in conditions of interdependence. And I think that we should try to reshape our society in ways that promote human flourishing. And I think that the study of evolutionary anthropology provides a nice reference point when used with care to understand what leads to that flourishing. Dr. Vivek Venkatraman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening this episode until the very end. I really enjoy recording, editing, and, and doing all the work that goes into these episodes. I, I hope that you enjoy the product. If you do, then I would really appreciate a helping hand. Uh, it can be something as simple as giving a nice review on your podcast app, sharing it with a friend, or if you haven't done so, just subscribing. That really helps immensely at this early stage of building the show. Whatever you decide to do, I hope that you decide to tune in the next time. Until then... Take care.